that uh, God was doing some great and wonderful things there uh, in Jerusalem, and multitudes were being saved. All right, you remember that the numbers grew to the point that they could no longer be counted, and they were only expressed in terms of multitudes. Well, that's where we are in Acts chapter 5, um, and we, we find that the believers in Acts chapter 4 um, were uh, uh, sacrificing and laboring together for the gospel. I'd like for you to turn back to Ephesians, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 4 and verse 31. And while you're finding your place there, let me tell you what's happened. Peter and John have been taken before the Jewish leadership, and they have been given grave threats about this gospel, this good news about Jesus Christ. He's dead and gone, remember? We'd killed him. He's not, he's not here anymore. Oh, well, yeah. Um, they didn't realize what actually was going to happen uh, after Jesus died on the cross. He rose from the grave, and they were about busy telling that, and the Jewish leadership was very unhappy about it. All right? And so they threatened them, uh, serious, serious threats, and told them they were not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus Christ and let them go. And so they returned to the disciples that had been gathered together and shared with them their encounter with the Jewish leadership. And they had a prayer meeting rejoicing over this persecution, all right? Because they knew God was working, and this was the reaction. Acts chapter 4 and verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. You could write evangelism right there. This, the, the preaching of God's word is going out explosively, and multitudes are coming to the Lord. And so verse 32 and the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses, sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is <clears throat> being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Hey, do you see what's going on here? H have you been able to look at that and I identify what is driving this? I'll bet you can. All right. Let's start at the top. Verse 32. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. We call that that sweet spirit of unity, don't we? Didn't we have that in last week's lesson? Yes, we did. And what was the what was the focus of that lesson? It was the gifts of the Spirit. <clears throat> Every individual 
receives one or more gifts from, the, uh, uh, from Jesus Christ when they receive Christ as Savior. <clears throat> and this gift is a special blessing that allows them to fulfill God's plan for their lives. This is very, very important. So I wonder if this might be what we're seeing right here in Acts chapter 4. First of all, we have this sweet spirit of unity. And notice the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and one soul. How is this possible with, such so, with so great a crowd of believers? Multitudes, numbers that cannot be counted, and yet they were of one heart and one soul. How is that possible? Well, it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's the evidences of the gifts of the Spirit. And it's that sweet spirit of unity that we always pray for. And that we defined that last week as everybody in the church exercising their gifts for the edification of one another. Remember? All right. So that's what I want you to think about that as we look at these verses once again. All right. And notice what they did. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, and they had all things in common. There it is, socialism. No, that's not socialism. This is a common place where uh, folks will go to to say, ah, communism and socialism, that's biblical. No, it's not what this is about at all. It is evidence of the, the gifts of the Spirit of God. Remember, one of those gifts was what? Giving. You didn't have to be rich. You didn't have to have a lot of money. You just had to have a giving heart. God loves a cheerful giver. And they were in the midst of the greatest evangelistic outreach in the history of the world. And people were being saved every day. The Bible told us that souls were added to the church every day. And they were seeing this great evangelistic outreach. And they were now moving out further and further, reaching folks with the gospel and people were being saved. And so they saw the need. Obviously, there were some with, who had less than others. That's in, society, in any society. <clears throat> but also, their desire was to advance the evangelistic outreach. All right? So let's keep that in our mind. And it says, and with great uh, power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And they were going out. Jesus taught them to go out two by two and share the gospel, and this enabled them to do that. Uh, to send an outreach of uh, believers to areas and, and share the gospel. And this was a, a means of, of, of funding such an effort. This is uh, the result of the manifestation of the gifts of the Spirit. This is, how it's, when it, this is what it looks like when it's working in proper uh, operation. All right, and so I want you to remember that. Verse 36, we're introduced to somebody of note. Now, he apparently had <clears throat> this reputation for a long time. All right, his name was Joseph, 
But the apostles had given him a surname of Barnabas, which means the son of consolation. You know, I'll bet he had the gift of mercy. What do you think? I'll bet he did. And uh, among other gifts, obviously. Um, and he has the gift of giving as well because, um, one, he was a Levite. Remember last week we read the verses, and many priests believed. Well, Barnabas is of the tribe of Levi. He is uh, part of the priestly tribe. He's one of these that have believed, and he, he bought it in hook, line, and sinker, didn't he? And uh, he allowed the Holy Spirit to use him in every way that he could. And his desire was to reach out and help people. And so he was, he was so known of this, he was given this surname of Barnabas, and he had land and sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. These early Christians, they believed in the lordship of Jesus Christ. They believed that he had really died for their sins. They really believed that he'd risen from the dead. Many of them saw him, his resurrected, his glorified body, his resurrected body. And they believed that he had been exalted to the right hand of God. They believed that he had commissioned every single one of them, not just the apostles. Every single one of them had received the great commission from the Lord Jesus Christ to go forth reaching and helping people, and they believed that he was going to return at any time. And he was going to reward believers for their faithfulness to the great commission of saving and ministering to people. This, is, this was the very heart of Jesus' ministry, and they were totally convinced what the lordship of Jesus Christ really meant. It meant the surrender of themselves and all that they had to the Lord. Does God expect us to sell our home and our property and all of these other things? That's not what's being taught here. All right. But what is being taught is total surrender. A total surrender. Have you ever stopped to think, if you've ever had a part in leading someone to the Lord, that they receive eternal life now? Has that not ever blessed your heart? Have you ever had the experience and the opportunity of sharing the gospel to someone and asking them if they would like to um, pray and ask the Lord to forgive them of their sins and be their savior? And, and they say yes. And so you lead them through a simple little prayer of repentance and, and acceptance of receiving Christ as savior. And then have you not experienced seeing them look up at you and smile and you ask them, did God save you just now? And the answer is in the affirmative, and they're smiling even more. And you know, you can never go to hell now that you've trusted Christ as Savior. And they're smiling even more. Their eyes are bigger. You know, they've passed from death into life right before your eyes. That's a great thing. John 5, 24, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth... Um, uh, uh, Heareth the words of my Father, and receive him that sent me, hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. And that's present tense. It happens the moment they receive Christ as Savior. And these, uh, these uh, believers in, in, in this period of time, 
couldn't get enough. They couldn't get enough, and they sincerely had a burden for all of their uh, family, all of their friends, anyone they met. They shared this great message because they had the ability to see someone receive eternal life and know it right now, and that, that motivated them. We come to uh, Acts chapter 5 and verse 1, and we're introduced to a man named Ananias and Sapphira, and they appeared uh, to be participating in this great work, in this great spirit of unity among this amazing multitude of people. But that was not what they were doing. Secretly, they were going to lie to the Holy Spirit. Look at uh, Acts chapter 5 and verse 1, and what's the first word? But Satan didn't see this coming. He had no idea this would be the result of Jesus rising from the dead and ascending back to the Father and people believing in his words. He had no idea. You see, the Bible calls that the mystery, and he didn't know it. Let me give you another verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, if you want to look at it. I love this, this portion. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Paul writes, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And so here we have uh, Peter and John brought before the Jewish leadership, given grave threatenings about not preaching this, but it's, it could not be contained. And as a result, there was a great spirit of unity among the believers for this great evangelistic effort and for the care of other believers within, the, in, within their, their group, their ministry. And Satan had to stop it. Satan had to stop it. So we stumble over this word, but what is Satan going to do? Here's what he's going to do. A certain man named Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. <coughs> you know, the Holy Spirit always knows where the weak links are. He always does. And so as a church, that's why we need to pray for one another. All right? We, we are not ignorant of his devices, lest um, we be deceived by his efforts. Here's a couple that uh, apparently were ignorant of his devices and they fell for it and it came to Peter's attention. And so they sold a possession and kept back a part of the price. Is there anything wrong with that? No. Is that a sin? No. That's not what's being identified as the sin. His wife also being privy to it. Now Luke uses the word privy. What does that suggest? Uh, it might be a little nefarious deed here, and that's exactly what's going on. And they brought a certain part, Ananias brought it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But the Holy Spirit had brought something to Peter's attention because Peter knew the truth. And Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? 
Whilst it remained, was it, not in thine, uh, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost, and great fear came upon all them that heard these things. And the young men arose, wound him up, and carried him out, and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours after when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. And Peter said unto her, Tell me whether ye sold the land for so much. So they were misappropriating what they had sold the land for, apparently. All right. Tell me, what did you sell the land for? And she said, Yea, uh, for so much. Then Peter said unto her, How is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband at the door, um, uh, them which have buried thy husband are at the door, and shall carry thee out. Then she fell down straightway at his feet, and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in, found her dead, and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband, and great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as have heard these things. Stop and think for just a moment about what happened to Ananias. Peter said absolutely nothing about death, and he didn't even say anything about judgment. He merely pointed out the sin of Ananias, and he discerned he was lying to the Holy Spirit, not to the rest of the people, but to the Holy Spirit, and they had conspired together to do that. And he merely pointed that out. And uh, we're, we're reminded that the judgment of God is God's judge uh, uh, duty and God's alone. Now we look ahead at Sapphira, and what did Peter say? Peter uh, advised her that her judgment was coming too. This time he advised her of that and she fell dead at his feet. Um, Peter that time did declare judgment. He and the whole church now knew the seriousness of lying to the Holy Spirit. You see, God covets that sweet spirit of unity and Satan had filled the heart of Ananias to lie to disrupt that spirit of unity. And God was very, very jealous of that. Uh, only God knows the heart of any of us in here. And God knew the heart of Ananias. Some are, are perhaps would read this usually when they just read it in its spot without context or understanding. And they think God has, is really harsh. He, God didn't even give Ananias time to repent. Oh, don't forget what happened in chapter 4. Everybody understood what God was doing and how it was happening and the spirit under which it was, it was happening. That was all going on and well known by everyone there. Um, it, sometimes it's hard for people to recognize that God, yes, does indeed judge Christians. That happens. God does judge Christians. Sometimes he takes Christians home early because they've become an obstacle or a stumbling block or, or a hindrance to others being saved or to the hindrance of the work of the church. Sometimes that happens. God will uh, bring contrition sometimes. God will even bring um, 
a punishment upon us, all right? Uh, and then if we don't respond, he takes us home early. This is what I think was happening right here. Here was someone that was not responding to what was going on, understanding fully what was going on, and, well, Peter gives us three things uh, when he mentioned this to, um, to Ananias. He said, Satan has filled thine heart. A new individual had been allowed to move in to Ananias's heart, and Satan filled it. He took it, all right? And you told a lie to the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, he said, you didn't lie to men, you lied to God, all right? And so the early church be, uh, feared, is what it says here, the great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things, that this is serious. God is serious about reaching the world with the gospel. And this was Satan's attempt to interrupt that, and God was not going to allow it to happen. And it was an important lesson to the believers uh, as they were spreading the gospel to the, to the known world. All right? I think there are three things we want to uh, learn from this. Ananias and Sapphira conspired together to lie to God. Um, the, appearance, the appearance they were giving was that they had sold and given the entire price of the land. Uh, when they were only giving a portion. Um, and the amount of the offering was not the issue. It was in their power, all right? Their decision to lie was what offended God's spirit. And their decision to keep some of the selling price was not a sin. But it was their sin uh, in disobeying the spirit and projecting a lie um, and breaking the sweet spirit of unity that was manifest to all to see in the word of God. Secondly, it's possible to masquerade a spirit-filled life. I think the contemporary movement has done a great deal uh, to promote that charade, if I may. I've had occasion, uh, the church my mother went to was a Southern Baptist church, and of course they brought in the contemporary music and all of that, and uh, they would spend the first 30 minutes of their service with their praise and worship time. And the whole time I was there, I was thinking, this looks like the prophets of Baal to me, uh, but I'm just being critical. Um, but the music was contemporary. It didn't really, you couldn't even whistle it. After church, you didn't walk away whistling any of that music. It was more chant-like, all right? And lots of percussion and things like that, and oh, wow. And then they'd get past that, and then they would sing a traditional hymn, and then they would get on with the service. Um, but um, it's possible uh, to masquerade a spirit-filled life. And uh, this couple plotted hypocrisy, and that's not what God wants. Remember in your book, we have Philippians chapter 1, verse 10, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere. And we said that was no cracks, no hypocrisy, and without offense, Till the day of Jesus Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit desires, that we be sincere and without offense. And thirdly, God was repulsed by the lack of spiritual authenticity. I think the best example of that is also in your book there referring to Revelation chapter 3 and verse 16. 
I remember years ago in the Sword of the Lord, John R. Rice had a big sermon on the top front half of the, uh, the Sword of the Lord, and the title of the message was The Sin That Makes God Sick. All right, I said, well, i got to read that. And, of course, you know now what verse that was because God said, uh, because thou art lukewarm, talking to the um, church at uh, Laodicea, thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. In other words, it made him sick to his, his stomach, making him feel like he wanted to vomit. All right? He was, it was so repugnant to him to be lukewarm. We can't allow lukewarmness to come into our lives. We've got to be on fire for the Lord and be fervent in our walk with the Lord. The world needs to see the power of God on every life in our church and see it manifested in all sincerity and no hypocrisy. The second sin of Christians is quenching the spirit. That was one of our verses today. Obviously, you know, to quench means to put out or to stifle or to snuff out or to stop. And the Holy Spirit is always working in the life of the believer uh, to lead him to do God's will. That's why he's walking alongside us, to encourage us to do God's will. And when we read the word of God, he speaks to us and says, today, let's work on this. All right. And then he'll walk along with us and help us remember we're working on this. And then we'll be a, there'll be a test at the end. You know, I'm just kidding. But he's wanting us to be able to do the will of God and have a, a sincere relationship with the Holy Spirit that's evident to the world. How do we quench the spirit? Let me just give you some examples of things that uh, ways that we can do it. And some might you might feel like we've accommodated some of these things in our lives. We've got we've to avoid it. We can ignore the Holy Spirit as he speaks to our heart. Maybe in prayer, something comes to mind. Do we stop and say, I need to pray about that? I don't know why he brought it to my mind, but I'm going to pray about it. Or do we just ignore him? Um, or neglecting the Holy Spirit. We know he's there. We take him for granted. He'll be there when I get back. And um, what I'm doing is more important now. Or maybe directly disobeying him, but the most insidious is simple procrastination. Say, oh yeah, we agree with the Holy Spirit of God. Yes, indeed. And then we procrastinate and never get around doing it. All right? Um, you know, you've probably heard the saying, delayed obedience is disobedience. And the Holy Spirit sees it that way, to be sure. You've probably all had the experience of sitting around a fire, and um, soon the fire dies down a little bit. The room grows a little darker, maybe even a little cooler. And uh, the flame is gone down now, and it's just embers uh, burning there. All right, what do we new, usually do? We get up and we stoke those embers and we put some more fuel on it. And in no time, we've got light and heat once again. And we enjoy the warmth uh, of that fire. And that's the way the Holy Spirit works in our lives. He's constantly looking for a tender heart that he can stoke and stir and excite and warm up and give light. He's looking for those things. 
Does, God word, does God's word still move you? As you read your Bible, do you just get to the point, well, uh, I'll get through this and one more chapter, I'm done. All right. Does God's word move you? If, it does, if God's word doesn't speak to you, whoa, stop. Say, I, I better read another chapter or two. I need to read until God's word moves me. That's how you read your Bible, all right? There are systems and methods, and all of those are great. And exposing ourselves to the word of God is always profitable. But a good rule of thumb is read until God moves you. And if God hasn't moved you lately in, through his word, it's time to throw on some new fuel. You let your heart be tender and open to God and uh, allow him to bless you in his word and as you read and study and avoid quenching the spirit. You know, uh, we just have to be careful. We need to sense, is our uh, presence, our time with the Lord growing colder and dimmer because we may be uh, quenching the spirit? Third, grieving the Holy Spirit. And you're given uh, a, a verse here in, first, in Ephesians 4, 29 and 31. Let not corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of uh, redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away with all malice. To grieve means to pain, to vex, to sadden, to distress, um, uh, to cause heaviness. And the Holy Spirit is pure, holy, and righteous. And how do we grieve the Holy Spirit? By allowing pure, impure things to come into our lives or to behave immorally or act unjustly um, or allow or participate in anything that would be contrary to the spirit, nature and spirit of God. We've talked about convictions before, and I believe God settles some things in our hearts that we agree with God, that's really, I don't really want that in my life. And a lot of those are all always personal. They are things that God has impressed upon your life, and you have been convicted about it. That, that means proven guilty. And he says, I don't want you to have that in your life anymore. And we purpose to not allow that to happen. We call that having convictions. And so um, let me ask you this question. It, because of the nature of our class, who is the easiest person for you to um, grieve? And it's probably your spouse. Why is that? Well, I'll tell you what. There's no spirit of offense between the husband and wife, but because their hearts are so joined together, the sensitivity of each other is easily grieved. And so that's why we would never uh, walk through the house and try to offend our mate. We wouldn't do that. And, and we need to do, think the same way about the Holy Spirit. When we discover what grieves the Holy Spirit, we want to make it right. I want to go to this Roman numeral 2, sins the unsaved commit against the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And then the first one is resisting the Spirit, Acts chapter 7. And this, of course, is Philip. He's, uh, he's going to be stoned in just a few verses. Um, but let's, let me just list, read these things to you. Um, 
uh, Acts 7, 51, and I'm going to go on and read a few more verses. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have now, you have been now the betrayers and murderers. You crucified the Lord of glory, the promised Messiah, who have received the law by the dispensation of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they immediately repented. No, what did they do? They were cut to the heart. In other words, the conviction of the Holy Spirit cut to the heart. All right, And they gnashed on him with their teeth. And when he said, I see the heavens opened and I see the Son of God at the right hand of the Father, verse 57, they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord, cast him out of the city and stoned him. That's, that's resisting the Holy Spirit. He called them stiff-necked, hard, obstinate, stubborn, uncircumcised in heart. That was tantamount to calling them heathens. All right? And, and so uh, that angered them. And he called them resistors, those who resist God, who deliberately oppose or rush against God, who actively struggle and fight against God. Listen to what God said in Jeremiah 32 and verse 33. And they have turned unto me the back and not the face, though I taught them, rising up early and teaching them, yet they have not hearkened to receive instruction. Malachi 2.2. If ye will not hear, if ye will not lay to your heart to give glory unto my name, saith the Lord of hosts, I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yea, your ble I have already, I have cursed them already, because you do not lay it to heart. And so, resisting the Holy Spirit is a serious charge. No one in the word of God was ever promised the opportunity to hear the gospel twice. If the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart and convicts you and shows you your need of a savior, don't despise that. Don't despise that. Respond to it and respond with an open heart. The last one is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Matthew 12, 31. Wherefore I, Jesus Christ, say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven men. Do you know what that verse is referring to? It's referring to the unpardonable sin. What is the unpardonable sin? It's the one sin that there is no forgiveness, uh, no forgiveness for. It's not a sin against Christ. It's a sin against the Holy Spirit, the person who works in the heart. John 16, verses 8 through 11. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And we can boil down his ministry to one word, conviction. He brings convictions into the lives of the, of the Christian. He brings conviction into the lives of the unsaved so they see their, new, uh, their need. Someone who is in danger of, of committing this unpardonable sin is someone who insists in his own way all the time, refusing to acknowledge God and surrender his life to God, choosing to 
ignore or to be blind to what he sees, feels, and hears when the Holy Spirit speaks to him. And that individual can become so hardened that because he's reviled and neglected and ignored and hardened his heart against God's spirit, that it's permanent. He's blasphemed God's spirit, and Christ says such blasphemy is unforgivable. But you say, wait, all sin is forgiven except one, and that is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and that is not forgiven, not in this world nor in the next. And so it's a very grievous sin. So when, when someone comes to understand God's love, God's gift, and God's offer to receive Christ and have eternal life and have your sins forgiven uh, and have uh, life everlasting, when that is rejected, it could be the last opportunity for that individual. Hebrews 10.29 of how much sore judgment, uh, punishment suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. Boy, for the unsaved, this is an alarming promise from God. There is one sin that is not forgiven. Let me mention this. This is an encouragement. If someone comes to you and say, says, I'm afraid I've committed the unpardonable sin, no, they haven't, all right, because the Holy Spirit's working. So if you encounter someone like that, encourage them immediately. No, it's not too late. If God is making you feel that way, he's still working in your heart. You've got to act on that now. You may never feel this way again. And so it's very, very important. So in the conclusion of our lesson this morning, just be mindful for Christians how easily we can offend the Holy Spirit, how easily we can stop the work of God, not only in our own lives, but maybe even in our church. And God judges that. God will step in. And, and so we want that sweet spirit of unity. We want everybody exercising their spiritual gifts for the edification of one another in our church. And we want to have that fire burn freely in our hearts so we can give light to a lost and dying world.